Hi everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P.D. Spensky. Today we are discussing chapter 16 and we will be covering this chapter in three parts over separate podcasts. This is part one. You will find the audio version of this chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website philosophyrekindled.com. Today my guest is Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar, and I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author, computer programmer and podcaster. Thanks so much for joining us and welcome Pete. So here we are, chapter 16. We are well and truly coming through the book. How are you going, Pete? I'm going great. You know, I'm just, I'm just looking at chapter 16, but in my version of it, uh, there are 22 chapters. And yet, when I pick up the book, we don't see much more than halfway through. So we're doing okay. Yes, yeah, some of those chapters at the end are quite long. <laughs> long, yes. Long. All right, so chapter 16. Now, this chapter has, I think, we will find a lot of gems and a lot of raised eyebrows because there are some things in this chapter where, well, personally, I've looked and gone, really? I don't necessarily think that's a fact, even though you stated it that way. And other things I've gone, that's a very short sentence, but wow, that says a lot. And it's just sort of skipped over true Aspensky style. But here's what I think this chapter holds that I've got out of it, is that Spensky is going to shine a light on consciousness and is going to tell us his point of view on dualism and monism and that the material world uh, cannot exist because you can't have uh, dualism in place if you're going to explain everything the way Spensky does. And he does work his way through to say that consciousness is everything. So he's kind of throwing away his thoughts about our starting points where we have the world and consciousness and he's moving to throw the world out and just talk about everything being consciousness. So uh, anything else to add to that if, as a summary, Pete? No, that's that's where he goes. Um, I'll have my thoughts. But yeah, yeah I'll, I'll add my things as we go along. Right. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to start on page... Well, it's page one of the chapter. Uh, and <laughs> a very good place to start. <laughs> very good place to start. So here is where Zbensky's talking about us thinking of man having different parts and functions all bound together in the one plane. But he's saying that the life of man exists simultaneously on different planes. And I'll just read a little excerpt for that. Many sides of the life of man are not bound together among themselves at all or are bound only by the fact that they belong to one man. But the life of man goes on simultaneously on different planes, as it were, while the phenomena of one plane only at times and partially touch those of another and may not touch at all. So this is where he's starting. He's starting with his premise that uh, that he's kind of touched on before that the life of man in this three-dimensional experience is just part of the the lives that he's living on many dimensions. Okay, that'll do for me. I have nothing to you add to that. happy with that? Yeah, fine. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's nothing. That, by the way, he's, he, you know, and he's not even claiming it, but he's giving this nothing new there that's been said by billions of people throughout billions of eras and eons and God knows what. So, yeah, fair enough. Let's go, for, let's move yeah. on. Yeah, and he does, he does spend a little will point out he does spend a lot of time tying in together the concepts that he did in chapters 1 to, to 12. So he's he's kind of using this chapter to bring in all that stuff that he talked about, which I know, Pete, you can't wait to hear again. Uh, all the Yeah, I know you're desperate for it. He, can't, <laughs> he brings in all that stuff to say, see, this is where we've been heading and that's why positivism is a furphy. But anyway, so he does come to his next point while he's re reiterating how we understand consciousness in another. And he's saying that that's an, an, it's by analogy with consciousness in ourselves. So we will only recognize consciousness in another if it's recognizable as analogous to our consciousness. Or, and he does go later on to say, or oh, that consciousness is of a lower form. And he does again bring up, you know, your favorite subject of the consciousness of animals and plants being of a lower 
um, level and therefore as being higher, we can recognise it. You look like you want to say something, Pete. I'm going to shut up and let you do it. <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just saying here we go again. You know, he's making, he sees everybody from his point of view. He sees everything and everybody from his point of view and he makes this horrific, and I mean horrific assumption that he's dead right, except that he is a mathematician and a logician and he thinks that logic has the greatest value and it comes clearly through in his writing. We'll see. I'd rather, I'd rather just touch on this item by item so that we say, okay, let's discuss that you've actually um, put yourself in the centre of your own idea, which is, which makes it illogical <laughs> for the point that you're trying to make. And, and then let's have a look at the ideas where we can say, hmm, food for thought. Mm-hmm. So exactly. yeah, I, I, I'd rather do it that way rather than have, um, you know, a, a rant, a long rant. I mean, I've just had something of a rant. But uh, rather than just keep going it. on and on, yeah, yeah, that was a rantette. Yes, um, we, yeah, we'll because he does it all the time, and it is very infuriating. Other philosophers don't write in this way, and it's why we've heard of them, and it's why their names have travelled down through history, like the name of Achilles, and why his hasn't. You know, I think with Aspensky, he's a mathematician. Now, we all have jobs. Like, I'll never be known for being a risk analyst, you know, world-famous risk analyst or even a world-famous programmer, but it's the job I do, and that, for him, I think he's a mathematician. That's the job he does. However, I think what he's what he's done is he's, he's dipped his toe into theosophy and started to get really excited about it, grabbed a bunch of concepts that really resonate with him and written about it, but he hasn't got the writing gene. So he's he's written about it as best he can, but he's not he's not an author, do you know? I think it's I think there's more to it than that, personally. I, I think that what he hasn't done is stepped outside of his day job either. He thinks that he has, and this this is why it's very infuriating. He 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 really thinks that he has, but he hasn't. He brings everything mathematical and logical and thereby Euclidean and three-dimensional into everything he writes. He can't help himself. It comes out time after time after time in every chapter. Anyway, well, he even does we, use let, let, an Euclidean reference here in this chapter. Yeah, I might add. So yes, we'll I know. He, I know he does. That's why I mentioned it. So we'll <laughs> <laughs> come on, Pete. So come on, let's let's let's, let's go. Let's yes. go. Yeah, no, let's, let's go let's through go the, on. the chapter. Yeah. Okay. So so he's talking about. If we couldn't exchange thoughts with one another, then we wouldn't be able to ascertain consciousness in, in another. And then we would we would think that we were all, well, to ourselves, we would think that the rest of humanity was like an automaton. We would be the walking dead per se. But But basically the actions and reactions of the the human would be an influence by the outside surroundings maybe you know by the planets or spirits or the wind or whatever so he says and I'll just read that con that concept he's got there suppose I live among men without the possibility of communicating with them and having no way to make conclusions based upon analogy because he's saying analogy is how we do our consciousness in that case I, I should be surrounded by moving moving and acting automatons and the cause the purpose the meaning of those actions would be perfectly incomprehensible to me and I think that the next thing he's he goes on to say is about you know how I would explain their actions I I could he says you know perhaps I'd explain them as molecular motion or the influence of the planets uh, etc but in any case I should not and could not see the consciousness in the depth of these men's actions and I think it's having a dig at positivistic science where they're not considering consciousness in any of their uh, dealings with the phenomenon world so I think he's and and look it's not not going to be the the last time he does have a dig at positivism in this chapter especially uh, I, I'll you know spoiler alert the very last uh, paragraph in the in the chapter really gives gives them a you know <laughs> a heave ho okay so So anything to add? I'm just still building this. Okay. The... Yeah. Well, first off, I mean, just just before the the little part that you you read out there, 
He does say, we do not sense the psychic phenomena of others, i.e. the thoughts, feelings and desires of another man, but the fact that they exist in him, we conclude from what he says and by analogy with ourselves. Mm -hmm. Not true. Not true. You, that's how it might work for you, Mr. Uspensky, but there are plenty of people alive now and previously alive who do sense this in other ways. And in fact, there are people that make a living by doing this and doing it successfully. People that uh, have such a degree of non-phenomenal empathy that they can predict without relation to themselves what someone else is feeling and what they will feel about a particular phenomena that they will experience or might experience. And you know, this, this is where um, great counsellors come in and this is where great therapists come in and particularly psychotherapists and certainly in my, my area of the world. But just as a phenomena, I find it very, very difficult to switch off the idea that, you know, what we would normally say is, you speak for yourself, mate, because that might be true for you. You may not be able to grasp um, how someone else is thinking or feeling without um, relating it to your own life, thoughts and feelings and reactions. But there's a, there are plenty of people that can. And this is why staggering amounts of millions of dollars are spent in experimentation, much funded by the military, into this very area. If Uspensky was right in what he was saying here, it would be, okay, we need, there's no point doing that. This is what... But is he this not... Is, yeah, go on. Is he not, is he not just talking about the existence of consciousness as opposed to the level, degree or otherwise of it? Is he not just saying the fact that we can feel consciousness in ourselves at a certain level's not the right word, but, but we, we feel consciousness in ourselves and we, we see other people exchanging thoughts or exchanging. It's not what the thoughts are, but it's the fact that, that when we interact with other people, we get the same feeling that they too have consciousness as opposed to if we were dealing with a piece of wood. Well, that's um, not what he said so here. Kind of, that's, not what, that's not what he said in the bit that I just read out. What you, you, say, may, you may be... That in mind. You, oh, oh, let me read it again then. Yeah, he says, please. We, we do not sense the psychic phenomena of others, i.e. the thoughts and feelings and desires of another man, but the fact that they exist in him, we conclude from what he says and by analogy with ourselves. That is... A, a really sweeping generalization that doesn't take into account that there are many, many people, many, many people who can actually see and communicate on a level beyond this phenomena and without having to relate it to themselves. What Spensky is saying is, whenever I see a spider, I react with horror and revulsion. Therefore, I must expect that other people will react with revulsion and horror. Now I'm using an extreme example here, he, you know, just just to make the point. He's actually saying that we only conclude anything about other people in relation to ourselves, by analogy with ourselves. The words are quite clear. We can only conclude from what he says and by analogy with ourselves. Not ambiguous. And I'm going yeah, to say no, that, 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 that I'm going to say that that is absolutely 100% him saying, "Well, this this is how it is for me, so it must be like this for everybody else." And I'm going to say, "No, absolutely not." So, so stop making these generalizations about yourself as though we all must be like you, because there are plenty of people who are not. Plenty who can just intuit. I mean, this is this is the idea of intuition. We, they can intuit the feelings and project the reactions of other people, not based on who and what they are, not by analogy to themselves, but by what they actually feel about that person. And as I say, this is this is often the basis of, of great therapy and great counselling. The, the really best people are that kind of empath. And a great empath yeah. doesn't do, doesn't, doesn't put the other person in their shoes, they go and stand in the client's shoes. It's a, it's a totally different thing. You see, it's the exact opposite of what Uspensky is saying, is what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I, I hear what you're saying, and I you know, I agree with, with where you're going there. I think for Uspensky, he's building his case on the fact that 
uh, analogy is a tool for recognising, well, in this case, consciousness in others. And he does move on to saying, well, that's just not going to cut the mustard anyway because you will miss out on those that have uh, a different consciousness than you by just drawing that unless you can expand your own. But but he does further go on to say that, yes, you're right, um, he does further go on to say that even if you expand or you, you move your consciousness to incorporate more of the, the world that you haven't noticed before, then you may interact with other consciousnesses that, that see that, but it's not giving any scope to no. be able to intuit that someone else might have a different different uh, experience. Lens. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah different lens. It's a great one. Yeah. So I yeah. Okay, but you know that that was all I wanted to say about that bit. But uh, you know, this idea of having to base conclusions on analogy, I'm just going to say that I don't accept that. Any any. Again, you know, he creates a foundation to me that's built on sand rather than on granite. And yeah, and look, some of this chapter he does go on to say good stuff, but I, I don't like. Yeah. His, I don't like how he's created the foundation, and he, I have this all the time with him. And these these horrific generalizations that we're all like him. Okay, so he continues with his analogy, and he says, you know, if if I convince myself directly of the existence of consciousness in another man, studying man from one side only, I should stand in the same position in relation to him as, according to Kant, we stand in relation to the world surrounding us. He's bringing Kant back into this chapter, you know, spoiler alert. We know merely the form of our knowledge of it. The world in itself we do not know. He then goes on to talk about that the knowledge of man in himself, i.e. his consciousness, Again, we can only uh, assess by two methods, analogy with myself and intercourse of my consciousness with the consciousness of another by the exchange of thoughts. And what I want to pull out of there, because he does sort of put this theme into this, but not, not in very many sort of flashing lights, but I think it's important. He talks about the exchange of thoughts being that interface between consciousness as if the exchange of thoughts is the conduit between, it's the communication between consciousnesses. Okay, but so I, now he's using, yeah. he's, now, he's now using separation as though there isn't a continuum, as though your consciousness is completely divorced from mine and not, not connected. And that means that we are talking in 3D analogy we're looking at the third dimensional analogy for something that clearly isn't okay which is not where he goes in this chapter i'll point out i know it's not i uh, look we we we're doing this bit at a time if we want to just jump to his conclusion let's do that but this is going to be a five minute exercise and he needn't have written this book no we are stepping through we are disciplined and we're doing the step through yeah exactly we're... okay so so if he's saying that well, intercourse of my consciousness with the consciousness of another by the exchange of thoughts is how we have knowledge of man in himself. He's, he's kind of intimating that to have an understanding of not this three-dimensional three expression of man, but the noumena of man, that's what I'm thinking he means by man in himself, that we could use the exchange of thoughts to explore that i'm i'm not 100 percent clear on that as to why that is different to analogy with himself because how would i make an analogy mm -hmm. okay right first of all first of all this this phrase by the exchange of thoughts i think we shouldn't get all excited here you know i think we have to calm down you know take a cold shower and not imagine that he's thinking of some kind of supernatural transfer of thoughts. When you and I speak about a subject, we're exchanging our thoughts using the medium of speech. And that's mm -hmm. what he means. And that, by the way, is a common use of exchanging ideas. If you're an, if you're an academic at a, com a conference or a symposium, this is what you're doing. You're exchanging thoughts, but you're not sitting in two separate rooms going, Oh yeah, yeah. Your thoughts are coming through to me now. That oh, I feel your thoughts. No, that's not what, what's happening. And I think that we can't, we shouldn't get overexcited about this idea of exchange of thoughts here. 
because of all these because meaning gears. I will un I will understand another person either by looking at what that person does and relating it to what I would do in that circumstance, or by going up to that person saying, "Hey, what are you doing? Why are you doing that?" and then getting their idea why they're doing it and how they're feeling. That's what I. I believe is meant by exchange of thoughts here in this chapter at that very point. I know we move on, but right there, I think it's, we shouldn't get too excited and start talking about psychic phenomenon and God knows what else, because I don't believe for a moment that that's what's intended in that phrase. Right there. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's fair enough. I, w I was getting a bit excited, I must say. I'm thinking, oh, he's getting into something and he's doing a throwaway line. But, yeah, no, I understand what you're saying there. That makes sense to me now. I'm rather, you know, taken with this idea of having intercourse, but not with him. <laughs> with supermodels, yes, but not with him. He is, he is kind of sort of indicating that would be his consciousness that you have the intercourse with. So. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's it. I've got to tell you, Ospensky, it's never going to happen. Good to know. Good chat, Pete. <laughs> but anyway, moving on. Moving so, on. Let's go. Moving on. Okay, so then he comes to say the noumenon of a man is his consciousness together with everything his consciousness includes within itself and that with which it unites him. So... It seems that he is now reiterating that the noumenal world is consciousness. Consciousness is that uh, hook into the noumenal world. And he has kind of said this before. He then goes to italicise, and I think this is the point to discuss, noumenal means apprehended by the mind. So he's giving us a bit of a definition. Mm -hmm. And the characteristic property of the things of the noumenal world is that they cannot be comprehended by the same method by which the things of the phenomenal world are comprehended. Okay, I've, I've, I've just put okay with that. Yeah, we are just reiterating what he's, he's spent many chapters explaining and going through. So so then he then he goes into the, the thing that I think, uh, well, I think is interesting. He says, the noumenal world or the world of causes is for us the world of metaphysical facts. And I think this is... A bold statement because he is now really he's well we think he's abandoned maths but I know he does mention one maths thing in this chapter but you know we we're all moving into this metaphysical side of the discussion and I think he's flagging it here that's all he's doing he's just he's just got one sentence and he's flagging you know metaphysics is is where I'm heading yeah okay but that that last those last words are not in my book. This mess, he doesn't mention metaphysical at all. No. Oh, he mentions this just before this next paragraph, which I think is pretty interesting too. Thus consciousness, with all its functions and with all its contents, thoughts, feelings, desires, will, relates itself to the metaphysical world. We cannot know even a single element of consciousness objectively. Emotion as such is a thing at which it is impossible to see just as it, as it is impossible to see the value of a coin. You don't have that. I have thus the psyche with all its functions and with all its contents, thoughts and blah, blah, blah. I have nothing that mentions metaphysical. This is what happens when we've got different versions. But mine, obviously, we've mentioned many times, is the earlier version. So it's been taken out. So you don't have relates itself to the metaphysical world. No. And I do have something about we can't see, hear, touch, weigh, measure them, nor can we photograph them or decompose them into chemical elements or number their vibrations, except that I've just said uh, maybe we can actually because we are already understanding that harmonic resonance, uh, which we actually express in terms of frequency, number of hertz, etc., etc., does actually have an effect on the noumenal life of human beings. So, yeah, we do. For example. Okay, I've got that. Yeah, I've got yeah. that paragraph about Yeah, so, so, you know, just because he says something doesn't make it true. And, uh, yeah, well, we all, we're already starting to measure in terms of frequency. And it's interesting that he put that there, the number of their vibrations. Interesting term. There's a whole, I mean, we, we could go off on tangent here and wonder what he's speculating on. Because uh, I know, and uh, because I've read Bolabatsky's work and he had as well. But um, the... But I will say that harmonic resonance, uh, people are starting, you know, they have for a long time experimented with it. Now, people have been using sound to affect mood and, and, and psyche 
and emotion for the well innumerable ages however now in our modern scientific world we are able to actually define those frequencies you know you'll go to a tibetan uh, retreat or whatever the hell and they're using the singing bowls and they'll they'll make you feel a certain way and they'll activate certain chakras which is another thing that would be noumenal for him rather than phenomenal um but now we can say okay let's take a look at that singing bowl that you've used for the heart chakra and and yes i agree it has an effect so let's have a look at what frequency that is boom oh yes that's what whatever number of hertz it is and now electronically we can we can generate those tones and we can create that effect without using the singing bowl we can we can create it using other means and the and the vibration and the frequency has the same effect that's well documented um nothing surprising here so yeah we can actually measure certain things now if we've measured one who's he to say that we're not going to be able to measure others that we're not going to be able to ascribe phenomenal uh, measuring tools to this noumenal effect i don't know are we measuring noumenal or are we measuring phenomenal when we measure um, frequency well, I'm going to suggest that by investigating something that is noumenal in its nature, that the idea that the phenomenal, i.e. the sound from the singing bowl and the frequency, the vibration, because that's what it is, that's what sound is, um, that if you're doing that, then you're actually doing something that he's claiming you can't, can't happen. That we, <laughs> this interaction between the phenomenal and the noumenal i'm saying that it does happen and and it happens all the time and that we can measure the vibration that will have an effect on the noumenal life of a person we can measure that in phenomenal terms he's trying to claim that the phenomenal and the noumenal are so separate that we can't use phenomenal means to actually tell us i don't know what the what the the level of effect in the noumenal world is well i'm saying that yeah we can we do but he does say that we can enter into some sort of communication with them and maybe that's what what that is if you are using a frequency in the singing bowl and that affects your heart chakra that's the communication i'm only saying Al, that i he wrote this not me you know <laughs> no, i'm just pulling it he past. says he says that we can we can he says we can neither see, hear, touch, weigh, measure them, nor can we photograph them or decompose them into chemical elements or number their vibrations. And I'm just saying, I, I, I've ignored the other bits. I'm just saying that one thing that we can do and do do is number their vibrations i understand and that that actually makes sense because if we are going to have any effect say from meditation or anything at all and you know certain music puts you in a meditative state do you know all those things are phenomenal but impacting the noumenal and measurable like we know that piece of music with that tone or whatever you know that again using um what we're already doing with phenomenal i know that he talks about the brain and i I was quite amused when (laughs) When I read that bit, I'm not. I'm just getting a little bit ahead. Um, but the we do this all the time. If you were in my profession as a hypnotist, you would find that there are lots and lots of very clever companies that have put out this music that you can layer in the background if you're making um, hypnotic recordings, and they are pitched at different frequencies. So you'll have the same the same piece of music to your ears it will sound the same but the there are frequency vibrations that they've been recorded at a different uh, um, frequency of hertz to activate different levels alpha alpha brain pattern levels and so on and theta brain pattern levels and beta and so on and we're already doing this and by the way they do have that effect you can put um the little measuring tools on somebody's head subject them to this music and you will see the different brain patterns coming out it does it does do it it does it really well so we're already in the phenomenal world in the in the positivistic scientific world we are already working with areas that that are connecting us with the noumenal 
I'm sure that a lot of scientists wouldn't want to say it in these terms, but that's exactly what they're doing. They're doing something, they're actually starting to measure the effects of something that Spensky says is, is unthinkable. But we can do it. We do do it. We are measuring it. Yeah, and I think you're right. If, if, if you're completely positivistic, you would be looking for some positivistic measure. So that, that frequency, mm. you, you wouldn't be able to measure the numinal effect on the person as a measure, you just be able to measure that that frequency had an impact on the person. Yeah, that's and not, that's right. Be able that, to. That, that's yeah, that's it. So what we what, so what we would do then is label the vibration because the vibration, if we're assuming that there's vibration in the noumenal world, which he is, because that's that's what he says we can't measure because it's part of the psyche, i.e. the noumenal. Uh, so if we assume that there's vibration there then we are going to, and, and that we know that a vibration from this positivistic world, i.e. a frequency that we can hear, has the, a consistent effect on different people, then we understand that what we found is that the vibration of that emotion corresponds to the vibration that we can term as a frequency here in this world, thereby we are numbering the vibration of the noumenal experience. QED for now. I'm not going to say. I'm not going to say that that is the complete answer. But in relation to what Spensky is describing at this point in in this chapter, then yes, we we have moved to a point where we've decided that we can actually measure and and number the vibrations in such a way that we can actually make therapeutic use of the vibrations that we've managed to document. Yes, and that's that's no, what no. I'm saying. Yeah, no, I hear, I hear your point. I think let's move on though, because we could talk about this. Yeah, 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 let's absolutely it, move on. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, valid point, valid point. And I'm, I'm just going to um, move a paragraph down from there. Yeah, of course, of course. Where Spensky's drawing his bow is he's saying that, uh, he's, he's saying that it's impossible to see the numeral from the point of view that, um, you can't see an emotion. You can feel it, but you can't see it. But it, it's more to the point where a coin, you can see a coin, but you can't see the value of the coin. So he's saying that the physical is the coin, but the value of the coin is not seeable per se. Um, I'll just read you that bit. We cannot uh, know even a single element of consciousness objectively. Emotion as such is a thing which it is impossible to see, just as it is impossible to see the value of a coin. I'm not going to spend a long time on this, but... Um, that statement, for you to accept it, absolutely depends on what you define as value. I don't want to discuss it. Let's just put that, plant that seed out there because depending upon your interpretation of the term value, you could well be able to see the value of a, of a coin. So, But we'll move on. I'll let, I'll let that plant a seed. People want to think about that, they can. Okay. All right, Get. Yeah. Good, good point, good good point. So he moves on. Let's move on. He goes, uh, man why contains... Couldn't you, why two... couldn't you have spoken about the Egyptian darkness in a vial? Oh, I know, I because we've to. already spoken about that before. That's why I didn't go into it, but I love it. I love the fact <laughs> that do. somebody sold Egyptian darkness in a vial. And it makes me think maybe that's an internet business, selling something in a, in a vial that's, you know, like Egyptian darkness, for example. Hey, I'm sure people would buy vile. it. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there'd be people who'd buy it. <laughs> I'm going to do uh, it. I'm going to get sealed jar. And the moment that you t you crack the seal, you've let light in. Therefore, your Egyptian darkness has perished. That's right. You'd have to go to Egypt, though, for, to, to capture that darkness. Why? I will do, I will well, do that in, in noumenal astral travel. Yes, true, true. And you know what you could also say? You could also say that the darkness touched Egypt before it hit England, so it's the same darkness. Therefore, <laughs> Therefore yeah, it's the same darkness. It's, so facto, it's the same darkness. <laughs> so you've just, you've exactly. just caught it on this journey, journey back to Egypt for the next night. <laughs> and, the, and the trick for me is being able to recognise in the darkness in it, over England that which is Egyptian and that which is merely English. 
Yes. I can separate <laughs> the Egyptian that's darkness your skill out set. and put that in a vial. That's, <laughs> that's what you're paying for. When you that's buy a vial of my Egyptian <laughs> darkness, that's what you're paying for, my years of skill. In... Oh, yeah, sign me up for a jar. I'll, I'll have one. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, you, I'll, I'll give you a bucket load with a sealed <laughs> top, you. of course. All right, course, here we I'll go. Let's... Open it. Oh, All right, so... So, no, I'll be, yes. Anyway, so he says, including within himself two worlds, the phenomenal and the noumenal, man gives us the opportunity to understand in what relation these worlds stand to one another everywhere throughout nature. And this is a concept that he brings in later as well, where he's he's kind of intimating that uh, man is that conduit between that has a consciousness that is a conduit between the phenomenal and the noumenal worlds. He talks uh, later on about plants, you know, having uh, no no connection, whereas the evolutionary process has put man with their man's consciousness into that spot where we are that conduit. Mm. Yeah, he does say we've already arrived at the conclusion that the noumenon of a thing consists in its function in another sphere in its meaning which is incomprehensible in a given section of the world. And then he explains what he means by section of the world. And I, I don't think we have already arrived at that conclusion, but, you know, he does his usual trick of assuming that he has strung us all along with what he said previously and that we all go along with it. But I don't think he's proven that at all. However, it's not an argument worth having. So let, let's let's go on to what he does actually want to talk yeah. about so bring us on to the next point please i will but i'll just say one thing before i go on i think he has talked about and I, i've kind of agreed with him in many cases on this that the function of something in another dimension is not necessarily something we'd be aware of his example would be um the fictitious two planes where the fingers are on the the plane and the fictitious two plane person would see five circles but not have any concept of the function of a man do you know it's that it, that's his concept hey. about the noumenal yeah now do we want to look at this concept of he, he has asterisks that what he means by section of the world and he talks about section of the world going forward so i i think um it's probably worth a quick what he's talking about and he, in essence he's just saying that it's uh an intersection of different dimensions okay yeah okay I have, I have nothing else really to say on it. All right, let's move on. Okay, so he moves on to reiterate that man's consciousness is a function of man outside of the 3D world. So he's he's taking consciousness and moving it out of the three-dimensional into a, a different dimension, obviously a higher one. And he he says, it is necessary to remember that the noumenon and the phenomenon are not different things, but merely different aspects of one and the same thing. Thus, the phenomenon is a finite expression in the sphere of our knowledge through the organs of sense of the infinite noumenon. Yeah, and? And so he's working his way to monism here. He's Because this is where he heads to in the chapters. So he's saying that we are, we've been used to talking about phenomenon and noumenon as two different things and he has gone through this before and said well the noumenon is is just uh, expressed in the phenomenal world as uh, a, a function of our consciousness of it so he's he's just he is in fact just reiterating that it's the organs of sense that filter the noumenon and project that into a phenomenal world mm-hmm. okay. uh, and he's Okay, so he's saying that the consciousness is, well, he didn't say it actually here, he does say it further on. He's saying that consciousness is um, the function that filters the noumenal into the phenomenal world. So what we see in the phenomenal world has that filter of what of, of the expansiveness of our consciousness or otherwise. Right, am I just going to continue? We're happy with that, not happy with that? Either way, I mean, it's... Uh... Well, yeah, because in all honesty, that's like saying the sky's blue to me. Right. It's, it's, it's a statement of the bleeding obvious. Yes, and we have we have experienced many an explanation of this all the way through the book, so 
So, mm-hmm. we're, but what what we're doing is we're building we're building up towards this concept of monism, and I think this is where he's heading with it. Like he's reiterating, yep. he's bringing all this stuff that he's pre- yeah previously talked about, and that's what a lot of this chapter is. But he's he's now building it into his his um, tower, which at the pip, you know at the top will be monisms where it's at. So then he goes, man's Newman and his consciousness, because we cannot measure or observe this from a positivistic point of view. So that's that's how he's backing up that consciousness is Newmanan as opposed to phenomenon, because he's saying we can't measure it. I think we could summarise this statement to say that man's purpose lies outside the three-dimensional experience. I don't think that's what he said. You don't? No. I think he's differentiated between the phenomenal existence and the, in my book, he says psyche rather than consciousness, which I prefer. But uh, he says, we have a perfect right to regard the psyche of man as his function in some section of the world different from that three-dimensional section wherein the body of man functions. It doesn't say that man's purpose is there. It says that the purpose of that psyche is somewhere outside. Um, if you and Spensky doesn't do this, he doesn't fall into this trap. Certainly not here. If we do this spiritual thing, where oh, your true purpose it lies somewhere outside of your three-dimensional experience here, then you don't need this three-dimensional experience at all. It's worthless. If your purpose lies elsewhere in this other noumenal dimension, what's the point? Go straight there. Be entirely that. So, and I don't think Uspensky is saying that. I don't think he's saying that that man's purpose lies in this noumenal that we're attaching so much importance to. I, I think he's actually saying something that's far more akin to a reasonable explanation of why we would want to investigate the noumenal at all. In that he's suggesting that we have got a function here that's just as valid as that function there. And what we shouldn't do is try to um, analyze the function of the consciousness, of our consciousness, in 3D terms. We're saying it's different, but he's not saying that that is our purpose in its entirety. He says he's saying that it's only our purpose there. We have a different purpose here, is the implication. And that purpose is no less valid. You make a very valid point. And I've paraphrased purpose for function. So I've jumped in and gone function and I've leapt to assumption that that is is his meaning of purpose. When you explain that, that, that does make more sense. Because, yeah, why are we here? We're not here to try and be there. We're here to be here. But having said that... Well, you'd like to think that because that's where we are. But having said that, it's an interesting investigation to try and tap into, say, things that are happening elsewhere that might impact you here. So you can have some sort of influence to get a better here. Like, you know, if if I can tap into manifesting myself a, a brand new car. I have no problem with that at all. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking it's it's all about. I literally have no problem with that at all. Yeah, so honestly... You know, this, this idea that, that, that our purpose lie, our true purpose lies somewhere out of here. If you were already that before you incarnated in a 3D, um, to have a 3D experience, why would you even choose to do it? And if, if this uh, consciousness is so sublime and so wonderful, um, why would it choose to have a 3D experience, bring you down here to go through all this, Irrelevant and useless nonsense because your higher purpose lies up there somewhere, wherever, numinal. Yeah, like you're wasting your time down here. And then I have the idiotic statement that you come down here so that you can experience the learning of going back to... Really? Oh, if I was stop. already that, why would I need to stop? Yes, yeah, stop that immediately. You just wouldn't bother, would you? I mean, you wouldn't bother. I learned to walk when I was very little, like just like most human beings. I don't go back, I don't choose to go back into a state of not being able to walk 
just so that I can learn all over again what it's like and then have the experience of walking. Yeah. 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 I don't. And, and, and nor, you know, to me, this, this is just such drivel that we get from these people. And much to Espensky's credit, he doesn't drop himself down that hole here. He does not. Well done, Espensky. Yeah. Well, well done. done. Well done, that logician. Yes. And I think, you know, if we, if we pulled back our old analogy of the theme park, it would be like going into the theme park and going, geez, I should be at home doing the housework and not having any fun yeah. at all. <laughs> yeah, <park>. absolutely. <laughs> Sitting on the seat. And, and, oh, I, I should be. And the, the other one would be like doing the Helter Skelter backwards. You're, you're at the top and then you climb down the ladder and then try to climb back up the slide. Why would you put no. yourself through that? Why would you? Yeah, when you can go, yeah, <laughs> when you can, down the slide. <laughs> yeah. And then when yes. you've come down the slide, you can go on to the other rides in the theme park. What we've got with these, these ascensionists is the idea that you've climbed down the, the Helter Skelter ladder, decided that the theme park all around you is worthless, and you're now going to try and climb back up the, the very shiny, slippery, twisty <laughs> slide. <laughs> to get back to the top, while all around you, everybody else is going, woohoo, yay, on all the other rides. And I can imagine some other people coming down the slide and just knocking you down to the bottom again. That, <laughs> that was again. something that I hadn't even considered, but yes. And frankly, you deserve it, because the people coming yeah. down the slide are the ones having fun while you're struggling with your ascension and not actually living. Yes. So, yeah. So, anyway, he doesn't fall into that trap. So, and I'm glad that he doesn't. There is a purpose up there, but it's a different purpose to here. Uh, while we're here, enjoy here because you chose to come here. Do whatever it was that you wanted to do while you were here. And if you were a consciousness that said, oh, I'm going to go back down there so that I can experience what it's like to come back up here. I'm going to suggest that yours is a consciousness that the rest of us would be well advised to avoid if we like fun and happiness and joy. Because <laughs> that sounds so dreary. No, seriously, you know, you've, you've encountered these people in the so-called spiritual world, of the 3D oh, spiritual stop. world, and I've, and I've encountered loads of them, and they really are the most appalling people, and they really do see themselves as being cut above you. Because they've worked out that they they can ascend and they're, they're they're working towards ascension. I even have people telling me they've been enlightened, enlightened, and I'm thinking, well, if you had been, you wouldn't need to tell me, would you? First of all, you wouldn't want to, and secondly, I, it would be apparent. But nevertheless, they do tell me. I come across them. Nevertheless, not all the time, but frequently enough. Oh yeah, well, you were not Robinson anyway, Crusoe anyway. there. Anyway, we're here to have fun, and if we can, we can get some tricks and tips that that when we can wield some sort yeah, of yeah, yeah. other other uh, experiences in, we're going to do it. So, <laughs> interestingly enough, in my book, as as you know, uh, is a, a photocopied book of the nineteen twenties version, and and the person who owned this book, it was a guy. He's he's marked the um the sides of it and they've tried to erase some of it but this one here this oh, next okay. paragraph was next sentence I should say has a big capital yes next to it so let's read it and see why he thought perhaps this was a yes <laughs> moment having established this much we may ask ourselves the question have we not the right to make a reverse conclusion and regard as their consciousness the to us unknown function of the world and of things outside the, of their three-dimensional section. My wording is slightly different. I'll read you mine. Having established yes. this much, we may ask ourselves the question, have we not the right to make a reverse conclusion and regard as a psyche of its own kind? To us, the to us unknown function of the world and of things outside of their three-dimensional section. And yes, in other words, everything has consciousness, because that's what yes. that means. Everything has consciousness. Even the things that the positivist would say has none, a rock, a stone, etc. Has it, yeah, yeah. And it's not, where not it's just animals. Going. Yeah, I know. And, and, and funnily enough, like your, the, the reader of your version and the, the side notes, my, my side notes also says, yes, Everything has consciousness. 
<laughs> well, then you concur. You concur. We concur. <laughs> mm. I love this next. I love this next bit. You are not. I'm not letting you skip it. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm. I didn't. I didn't. Actually, I could even hand it over to you to to uh, to read your favorite bits. <laughs> the brain. I love this brain bit. I have this this 1950s sci-fi idea of this. Max Nordau, when he wanted to imagine the world's consciousness in his work Paradoxes, was obliged to say that we cannot be certain that somewhere in the infinite space of the universe is not repeated on a grandiose scale the same combination of physical and chemical elements as constitutes our brains. My side notes are, ha, 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 because I have this vision <laughs> of hidden somewhere in the universe a giant brain. I mean, we really are in 1950s sci-fi territory here. <laughs> Did they have something and, like that in um, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide? The, didn't they, they have do. the giant uh, brain uh, they did. in Hitchhiker's but Guide? I, but I, I, I find it hilarious. And bear in mind, Spensky was writing this in like you know nineteen, well nineteen thirteen, but published in nineteen twenty. But it's it's absolutely hilarious. I think it's brilliant that people would talk, people were so positivistic that that's what they thought. They thought that they were going outside positivism, but. They still couldn't conceive that there was a, a a plan, an order to the universe without it having a giant brain. Giant brain. <laughs> I can picture it. I'm visualizing it. <laughs> I can see it too. And he further goes on um, as as the gigantic brain analogy moves to the gigantic stagecoach. Mm. And I, I actually like this. I love that. Um, I love the this stage analogy. Well, can we just give him a, give a Spensky a thumbs up here for what he just says next? Because mm -hmm. he does say, this is very characteristic and typical of positive science. I love how he puts positive science in, in, in a, the inverted commas there, simply beca because you know that that's meant with utter contempt. <laughs> I love, I love that. Yeah. Is, yeah, the air quotes going up. <laughs> yeah, desiring to imagine the world's consciousness. Positivism is first of all forced to imagine a gigantic, gigantic brain. brain. <laughs> Surely the idea of a gigantic brain somewhere beyond the stars reveals the appalling poverty and impotence of positivistic thought. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was like applauding. <laughs> that was superb. He's, I mean, he really does. I tell you what, for everything else in, that's gone before in the book, that redeems it all for me. There's <laughs> two paragraphs. This is superb. He does disdain well, doesn't he? He does it very well. Oh God, that was superb. That was really superb. So shall we get on to the, shall we get on to the stagecoach? You, yes, you, I'll yes. leave it to you. You go on, you. Well, let me just uh, paint the scene, shall we, using Aspensky's words. Let us imagine that some curious inhabitant of Europe in the 17th century should try to foresee the means of transportation in the 20th century and should picture to himself an enormous stagecoach, large as a hotel, harnessed by 1,000 horses. He would be pretty near the truth, but at the same time infinitely far from it. And yet, even in this time, some minds which foresaw along correct lines already existed. Already the idea of the steam engine had been broached and models were appearing. And I think that's... Yeah, I put, I put that that's really well put, this, this idea of the thousand-horse ho driven hotel. Yeah. You, yeah. You're describing the Orient Express, aren't you? Or, or in his <laughs> case, probably the Trans-Siberian Railway. That's it. And it's not being able to get out of this rigid thinking that to to improve something, we have to take what we've got and make it bigger instead of going scrap what we've got and think differently to create something mm. different. Yep, that's it. It's the outside-the-box idea. Yeah, or even even throw away the box. Forget there's a box. <laughs> and, mm. Yeah, what box? And not even, not, not, yeah, what box? Um and that's, I think, you know, for all of us, uh, you know, well, for me, I, I've been uh, guilty of not being able to to think outside of my conditioning. And I think this is where he's saying it's that's that's one step one. Throw away what you know and and start from a clean slate. 
to to be able to allow something different to come in. I totally agree, and I I you know I like I like these little stories. There's there's more. There's more. He he goes on. Yes. Uh, you you continue yeah. with this next bit, Pete. Okay. The thought expressed by Nordau. By Nordau, yeah, and reminds one of a favorite concept of popular philosophy relating to an accidentally caught idea that the planets and satellites of the solar system are merely molecules of some tremendous organism, an insignificant part of which that rep that system represents. And then, in quotes, perhaps the entire universe is located on the tip of the little finger of some <laughs> great being, says such a philosopher. And perhaps our molecules are also other words. And then he says, the deuce! The deuce, <laughs> Perhaps on perhaps on my little finger there are several universes too, and such a philosopher gets frightened. But all such reasonings are merely the gigantic stagecoach over again, which, you know, he's, he's right. But I have a footnote here, and the footnote oh. is the bit that's important. I don't have and footnotes. He says, you go ahead. Ah, well, I'll, I'll, don't worry, I shall be forthcoming with my footnotes. Thank you. The, incor the incorrectness here is not the idea itself, but in the literal analogy. The thought itself that molecules are worlds, and worlds are but molecules, deserves attention and study. In other words, he's not saying that a molecule doesn't re represent a microscopic universe in itself. What he is saying is, why did they have to say that it's the molecules on your finger, or why the analogy to this? Anyway, it, yeah, it, it's just—it was just an interesting thought. I love this story that comes next. Oh yes, do you, the do you have it? The, yeah. the cat. I yeah, and I Go love on. it too. Go okay. for it. All right. So this is the way a little girl thought about whom I was reading, if I mistake not, in the Theosophical Review. So he's had a yeah. I suppose that's that was yeah. a um a magazine. That's one of Blavatsky's. Yeah. Oh, was it right? The well, girl let's put was this sitting way. near the well, it's fire. Theosophical. Okay, I just yes. just get get that thing. Theosophical Review is a privately printed um, pamphlet, a regular pamphlet published by the Theosophical Society of Helena Blavatsky. So. Ah, right. It's not the sort of thing you can nip down to the paper shop and 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 grab the the May edition of Theosophical Review. You certainly couldn't then, anyway. It's a bit like the the Golden Dawns and Alistair Crowley's Equinox uh, series of um, regular editions, and you know you, you could only get hold of them if you could get hold of them. In other words, you yeah. Had to know. Um, yeah. It wasn't quite as bad as that, but it was. It wasn't like I say. It, it wasn't mainstream. You wouldn't have found yes. it next to the Financial Times or the Sun. No, no. Um, so obviously, anyway. um, Spensky was one of those recipients, and he has quoted the story. The yeah. girl was sitting near the fireplace, and beside her slept a cat. Well, the cat is sleeping. The girl reflected. Perhaps she sees in a dream that she is not a cat, but a little girl. And maybe I am not a little girl at all, but a cat, and only see in a dream that I am a little girl. The next moment the house resounds with a violent cry, and the parents of the little girl have a hard time to convince her that she is not a cat, but really a little girl. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know what? I, I think what she has to, what she's thinking there is, is very interesting because it is. Uh, you know, we we go to sleep at night. And have all sorts of whatever adventures. Yeah, and who knows? Is is this the dream, or and is the dream the reality, or is the reality the dream? dream? And in fact, should we even be talking about it in those terms? Well, because yes. what's reality well, in that case? How do, how would you define that's it? That's right. So don't let, we won't go there because he doesn't. So yeah. we need to we need to move on. But uh, you know that's that's what's interesting is like. You know, if we could have, if we can have this idea that a dream can become so real or a thought can become so real that yes. we accept it as our reality, is it not then our reality? I, you know, that's, that's incredible. The, yeah, the, the other thing about this, which, which I find quite fantastic and, and pretty wonderful is the idea that you can actually change your reality, what it means to you by thought. Remember, the girl wasn't dreaming, but she was in some kind of trance. 
sitting by the fire, are you noticing all of the elements that come in here? What happens if you stare into a fire? You will go into a trance. Not you might, you will. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, you, you absolutely will. You do. I mean, we go into trances every day, but that one is unavoidable. If you stare into a fire, you will. And she's, so they've, they've got that element in there. And she has changed her reality by a thought when her mind has been put into a receptive state. To a point where her body reacts as if. Yep, that's right, as if that now is the reality. So that's, that's, that's an interesting story, and I'm sure, I wish we had a, um, access to that um, issue of the Theosophical Review so that we could see not just the story, but the analysis of it and what it meant in terms that were not positivistic, because the Theosophists were not positivistic quite clearly. Well, you never know. Someone might uh, post it on our website for us. Well, maybe <laughs> Send they us a will. Link. They might. I love this last this I love this last little paragraph following that story though and following those two stories, you know, the stagecoach and, and yep. the girl and so on. And it says and and the brain obviously. It says all of this shows that it is necessary to philosophize with a certain amount of skill. Fabulous. Our thought is encompassed by many blind alleys and positivism, always attempting to apply the rule of proportion, is in itself such a blind alley. You can't always measure things by analogy to positivism and the, your positive experience of the 3D world. Mm. That's what he said. Yeah. So we're going to leave it there, Pete, and we've got lots more to go in this chapter, but uh, I don't want to rush through as, as I know you don't either. So we're going to leave, um, leave it for this week right there, and uh, I look forward to catching up with you for the, the next part of Chapter 16 uh, next week. Thanks so much. It was my pleasure. It's been fantastic. And we're going into territory of dualism and monism uh, in the next half of this chapter. And I'm looking forward to discussing that a great deal. This is good stuff. Yeah, me too. Me too. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. And we look forward to your company for the next installment of Chapter 16.